Morning, friends. Thank you, Steve, for that reminder. As we begin a new series this morning, we'll talk about that in just a moment. But before we do that, I've got a question for you. What are you afraid of? Honestly, what are you afraid of? You can just think about it. You don't have to say it out loud. What are you afraid of? According to Chapman University, here are some of the top things that Americans are fearful of. I find this kind of interesting. Uh, Number one on the list is corrupt government officials. Nearly 74% are afraid of corrupt government officials, and I don't know why you'd be afraid of that. It sounds dumb to me because most of them... Oh, let me move on. Um, Number two, uh, pollution of oceans, waterways, and drinking water. 62% of us are afraid or very afraid of that. Not having enough money for the future. People I love becoming seriously ill or people I love dying. Those are kind of all grouped together. They're at about the same percentage. That's what many Americans are afraid of. But research shows that up to 20 million Americans have a specific fear or phobia that can actually control their lives. It's persistence and avoidance of a specific object or or situation is the normal behavior. I just don't want to go near that because I'm not comfortable with that. Our phobias include uh, globophobia. If you're not familiar with that, that's a fear of balloons. If you're suffering from that, see me afterward. We'll blow some up together, okay? Uh, Cheetophobia, that's the fear of anything hair-related. I'll let you think about that for a minute. Or on the other extreme, pelotophobia, the fear of bald people. That one twinges in me every once in a while when I look out on the congregation, um, but I'll deal with that. Arachibutyrophobia is the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. Yeah, welcome to America. These are phobias. Real phobias, and I mean the list is quite extensive. Millions of Americans plagued by fear. On a personal level, there's one thing that sends a shudder down the spine of most Americans, more than mice, more than a dentist drill, flying, or our own shadow. What do you think it is, number one? Nope. Way down on the list. Nope. Speaking in public. Speaking, yeah, pastors, that's a good one. <laughs> I don't think that made the list, but that's, that's kind of a cool answer. Uh, speaking in public, number one fear, speaking in public. And uh, I understand that, uh, I do. And yet, uh, in, in my life, that's not one that I fear generally. Uh, coming in third was one that I'm growing into. It's fear of heights. Fear of heights. The older I get, the less appealing climbing up ladders or looking over ledges comes to me. Don, Don, you agree with that? Man, and if I'm up high and uh, uh, there's a railing there and I'm like, whoa. Some of you are nodding. Okay, read Ecclesiastes 12. This is a normal part of the aging process if you're concerned about that. Uh, But we're all afraid of some things and they change uh, over time. Yet the challenge before us is quite intriguing because Jesus is looking for climbing companions. And I can't have a fear of heights if I'm going to be a climbing companion with Jesus. 
Allow me to read what was already read. When Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside. Those who were apprenticed to him, in other words, his disciples, the committed climbed with him. Arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and taught his climbing companions. He taught his climbing companions. Jesus is looking for climbing companions. That's the question that we have to answer. Are we willing to be a climbing companion with Jesus? So welcome to our new series. Let's start with a series name, Mountaineering with the Master. Took some time, in fact, weeks thinking through this. What's the right title for this sermon series? Mountaineering with the Master. In order to uh, get where we're going, we have to have a common language to reach a common goal. And so what do words mean? Words are significant. Words are important. What does the word mountaineering mean? Mountaineering might be a new term for you. We're going to be using that throughout this series. Mountaineering means climbing a mountain to reach its summit. Well, it sounds pretty obvious, doesn't it? Mountain climbing kind of deal, but it's far more than that. It combines hiking, walking, climbing. Mountaineering is for people who have the soul of an adventure, a high level of self-confidence. They're in really, really top-notch shape physically and they have the ability to survive in harsh conditions. They also have a high level of self-confidence uh, because if we're going to take this height, uh, man, we've got to believe that we can do this. Mountaineering requires great physical and mental strength. You have to have a desire, a desire to get out of your comfort zone. If we're going to take the height, right, we've got to get out from where we are, get to the next level, and it requires a ton of teamwork. One thing we're going to learn about mountaineering throughout this series is you can't do it alone. You can't do it alone. You have to rely, in fact, put your life in the hands of other people. Kind of scary thought, isn't it? Mountaineering is so much more than this casual stroll up this paved pathway to the scenic overlook where we just kind of, oh, wasn't that nice? No, this is rugged. This is dangerous. Mountaineering. So, who, who's the master? Yes, Jesus is the master. That is correct. So we're talking about doing this thing with Jesus. Do you know him? Now, most of you in this room will say yes. I hope by the time we unroll some of these uh, messages that we're going to question where are we with him? Do we know him? Are we living for him? Do we dare climb with him? Jesus is looking for climbing companions. So let's get started on this adventure. But before we dig into God's word, let's take a look at setting the table. Today we start something I've wanted to do for many, many years. In fact, a couple of decades, actually. I want to take the words of Jesus. Those are the words in red in your Bible or on your device. The words that Jesus actually spoke. And talk about the words and teachings of Jesus Christ. And the older I get, the more important it is to me that we understand the message that Jesus was truly trying to communicate. And sometimes the church gets in the way of what Jesus was trying to communicate. Make sense? And sometimes our ecclesiology and and all the stuff that we do as a church Uh, really has little to do with what Jesus was teaching and what he was all about. And so, uh, to come back to the very simple teachings of Jesus. 
the older I get, the more important those words are. And so for the foreseeable future, we're going to be in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And I'm estimating at this point probably take us at least two years to get through this. Now there'll be little excursions and other topics that we cover uh, from time to time. But this will be our default. We're coming back to this passage of Scripture, Matthew 5 through 7. That'll be our default. So let me tell you a little about this passage of Scripture. Matthew is the first and longest of the Gospels. The word gospel, euangelion in the original language, means good message or good news. Good message or good news, it's what it's supposed to be. The Gospel of Matthew was written by a tax collector named Matthew who left his profession of tax collecting to follow Jesus. That's recorded for you in Matthew 9 if you want to read about that. But Matthew gives us his up-close and personal look at the miracles that Jesus performed. Many of the miracles that Jesus did are recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. That's kind of interesting. Uh, And he tells of the miracles, and then he gives us a very detailed account of Jesus being arrested, Jesus being whipped and tried and abused and hung on a cross and rising from the dead, and the message that he gave to us after. And the end of his gospel is very clear about what happened to Jesus and the fact that he rose from the dead. Now that was significant because the purpose of his writing was to prove to his primarily Jewish readers that indeed Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. For thousands of years, the Jewish people had waited for this one who would be king. And his point in writing this was to show them this is the guy. He is God. And so, it was written between 50 and 70 A.D. Historical evidence suggests that Matthew obeyed the Great Commission that he left for us, the recorded words of Jesus at the end of this writing. He took the gospel to Ethiopia and Arabia, and there he was martyred in a rather horrific way for his faith. He died believing what he wrote right to the end of his life. That is very significant to me. He never backed off, never backed down. So, beginning in chapters 5, continuing through chapter 7, Jesus lays down his principles for living in a spiritual world he called the kingdom of heaven. And it was this kingdom that he came to proclaim. So, if we back it up just a little bit, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, he said, From then on, Jesus began to preach, Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And again in Matthew 5.23, Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. That was his message. That's what he began with, the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus Christ, God's son, Matthew portrays him as the long-awaited king. If he's a king, he needs subjects. That's where we come in. The kingdom of God, the Bible says, is not out there. It's right here. It's the reign and rule in the realm of God, wherever that's carried out, that becomes the kingdom of God. And that happens first and foremost in the human heart. So if we're thinking the kingdom of God is some kind of pie in the sky, streets paved with gold, this glittering place up in heaven, uh, that's partially correct. But Jesus would tell us that the kingdom of God is within you. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. No, no, it's not out there, it's right here. The kingdom of God is within you. And the kingdom of God is violent. And I'm giving you a message that is revolutionary, right? And so wherever the reign 
and rule of Jesus Christ is practiced, that is the kingdom of God. It's not something we wait for. It's right here and right now. It's right here in our heart if we will acknowledge it. And if Jesus is truly the king, then his kingdom is coming and it's here now. We're living in the kingdom of God. We don't have to wait for then, for heaven. It's right here. And it's right now. So we have some choices to make. The sanctuary for the greatest sermon ever delivered was on a mountainside. As far as we know, this was a large hill. Had no name until God used it as his pulpit. The traditional location for the Sermon on the Mount, that's what this is called, is on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And here's a picture from our time uh, this past January when we were in Israel. Uh, This is now called the Mount of Beatitudes. And this historically, for about 1,500 years, is the site in which Jesus taught. This was an incredibly emotional moment for me as I pictured in my mind Jesus teaching, introducing his public ministry, and he did so here. As you can see, these aren't white-capped mountains. These are just very large hills. But that's where it began. That was the site of where these words were delivered, at least in this region. Sea of Galilee is not very big, by the way. And so as I stood there contemplating Jesus speaking, the one who created all of these things, speaking life, talking about this kingdom that was now coming, overwhelming, overwhelming. So apparently the people sat on the hillside so that they could look down on Jesus and hear him as it was kind of a natural amphitheater. And Jesus spoke some profound things. Now, next to the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount is the most quoted section of the Bible. Here we'll find the golden rule. Here we'll find the Lord's Prayer. Also, some of the most misunderstood teachings of Jesus are found here. Some of the most misunderstood teachings of Jesus are found in this passage of Scripture. And so, he'll tell us things like, if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn and offer him your other one. I don't know how this exactly fits in this country of conceal and carry. I don't know how it fits. But we're going to be exploring some of these things because I'm going to share with you a little later the teachings of Jesus are absolutely contrary to everything the world is pushing on us. Was Jesus a pacifist? We'll wrestle with that when we get to that passage of Scripture. But some of the things he said were just like, what? Are you kidding me? Does that really work? Does that really work? Hmm. So Jesus delivered this one message at one time. Very compact message, but his words were revolutionary. In fact, they'll smack us right in the face just as he did his original audience when he spoke nearly 2,000 years ago. Here's the end of the story, 728. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. They were astonished at his teaching. That's an interesting Greek word. Astonished means to amaze, to be beside yourself. This thing is like mind-blowing. What? What are you talking about? We've never heard stuff like this. This is the kingdom of heaven? This is what it's all about? Are you serious? This isn't anything like we've heard before. No, 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 no. So the crowd was beside themselves when Jesus taught this. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is 111 verses long in our Bibles. 
It's by far the longest teaching of Jesus in the New Testament. That's why I believe it's significant, because here I believe we have encapsulated the entire embodiment of what, why Jesus came and how he expects his kingdom subjects to live. It's right here in these verses. So, let's look at how it all went down. Until this point in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus' words have been very few. He hasn't gone public yet, right? He's been baptized, uh, and he's starting to cause some rumblings, but he really hasn't come out with what he's all about yet. And so, in preparation for this sermon, which would be the next day, Jesus went up to this uh, big hill, and uh, he prays all night. And he gets away from the crowds to be by himself. One day Jesus went up on a mountain to pray and he prayed to God all night. Very significant. In the morning, he comes down and he delivers this message, right? He's heard from his father. And so his disciples were there and there was also a ton of people. A ton of people were waiting for him. Why were they waiting for him? Well, we'll see. They were all there in the crowd, the rejects, the forgotten Spiritually confused, the abused, the unconvinced, the morally bankrupt, the self-righteous, they're all there waiting for Jesus. They're curious, they're desperate, they're hopeful, they are hungry, they are bored. Some seek His healing powers they've heard about. Some seek, hey, can you feed us? Some come to listen to His teaching, but a whole bunch of them brought their sick, the Bible says. And they bring their demon-possessed, they're lame, they're blind, and Scripture says, and He healed them all. And he healed them all. Now, this is just before he gave this message. Why do you think Jesus healed everybody, cast out demons, did all this stuff, and then gives this message? Well, actually, it's quite simple. The miracles of Jesus are not self-contained. The miracles of Jesus always point to the message of Jesus. Understand that. Everybody says, oh, I wish we'd see more miracles. I wish we'd see more miracles. Miracles are a sign pointing to the message and the truth that will truly set us free. If we're looking for the miracles, we will miss the Master. Don't look for a sign. Look for the giver of all signs. He is the Savior. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. Yes, have I seen miracles? Yes, I have. But they're always designed to reinforce the message of truth that will transform and liberate hearts. Very, very different. Very different than some of the teaching that's happening out there about miracles today. He healed all these people. Was it significant? It was profound. If I had a family member who's healed by Jesus, do you think I'd be open to what he had to say? Absolutely. Absolutely. But they were just a picture of what was to come. Let's not get hung up on the miracle. It's the message that's profound and life-changing. Miracles are important. I love it when God breaks into our world and the supernatural becomes natural. Those are profound and incredible moments, but it's always designed for something far deeper. Okay? All right. So, they're there. Many in the multitude were transformed and believed in Jesus. Understand, the majority in that crowd were not. They had seen Him do the miracles, yet they did not believe. They listened, they watched, they were healed, they were fed, but they never truly repented of their sins and turned to God. And so, we have to ask that same question this morning. They were so close and yet so far. Jesus was right there among them. 
And so that's a reminder for me. I can be so close to Jesus. And Jesus is asking, what do you want me to do for you? Oh, I need a miracle, Jesus. Or do we? (laughs) Or do we? Jesus, feed me. Jesus, provide for me financially. Jesus, heal me. Jesus, straighten out this messy relationship. Jesus, take care of my boss or my neighbor or whatever, right? Kind of things that we pray. And they never truly repented of their sins and turned to God. So close to Jesus. So close to Him. So close. More than likely in that crowd, the majority were peasants and farmers and fishermen. They were the poor, the lower classes of society. Common folk like us, right? Just common folk. But there are also tax collectors and prostitutes in that crowd. The politically motivated, wanting a king to throw off the Romans. There was a whole bunch of what the religious powers that be called sinners in that crowd. They were all there. Most are nameless. They're faceless, but they're present. They listen. They watched. They saw. And even though the location is different, the reasons we have come haven't changed. Huh. I could ask, why are we here today? To be healed? To see Jesus, to hear good music, to hear Jesus' words. The crowds came too, and Jesus taught them. But He asks each of us the same question that He would have asked to them. What do you want Me to do for you? What do you want Me to do for you? And the answer to that question will reveal where we are in our hearts. What do we want? What do you want from Me? Jesus asked that a lot. What do you want Me to do for you? What do you want Me to do for you? Are we even content with a miracle? Or will we push through to see the message that He came? This revolutionary message. So allow me to make some observations. The theme of this mountain message is that God's work is first and foremost internal. It is not external. I think we all get that. It's primarily spiritual and moral rather than physical or political. Jesus never preached social reform. He did not talk about any of that stuff in this message. Never. Now that social reform is important. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But spiritual transformation is far more important than social reform. Jesus is about changing hearts and changing lives. The spiritual transformation. His concern always is for our heart. Knowing full well that who we are determines what we do. Who we are determines what we do. And what we're doing right now is a direct reflection of who we are with a master. Huh. Okay? Secondly. The teachings of this message are utterly and absolutely contrary to everything the world teaches. I touched on that earlier. The greatest in this kingdom are the lowest by the world's standards. Misfits and failures, the meek, the compassionate, those are the winners in the kingdom. Right? In order to lead, you've got to follow. To find life, you've got to die to yourself. To get back at your enemy, you've got to love him. Are you kidding me? To get rich, you got to give it all away. On and on and on, the stuff in this message goes. It's absolutely upside down and inside. Oh, man. We're going to get into some of these things. Okay? A new birth is necessary to meet this new standard. If you've got religion, 
if you've got best practices, if you've got traditions, if you've got great intentions to do good stuff, it's all going to come up short because what he laid on us right from the beginning is repent of your sins and turn to God. Repent of your sins and turn to God. This is what opens the door to genuine transformation. Not how good we are. Not what our best practices are. Not our, what our religion's all about. This is impossible stuff to even think about unless we have a new birth making us a new creation, allowing us to do the works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. That's the only way that this will work. And if we're not born again or born from above, if we don't have uh, this breath of Holy Spirit life breathed into us, this makes no sense. It's just some really good teaching by a really good teacher. Like, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Treat others the way you want to be treated. Oh, that's really good. If you boil Jesus down to those kind of statements, we're missing the point completely. Hmm. Okay? So, I trust that this will be as revolutionary as it was to those first listeners. Like, what? 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 And cause us to look inward and say, Where am I, Master? I want to be your climbing companion. I do want to do this thing. Man, oh man. Open my heart and my mind to what you have to show me. Now, a person, lastly, who lives by these principles will be a spiritual magnet. A spiritual magnet. If we truly decide to say, I want to be a follower of Jesus, I want to be a climbing companion, then we are going to be influencing others because living like this is pretty radical. It really is. It really is. And I think the Lord has brought you here to say, what's the next step up for me? Where do we go from here, but you know a magnet. What happens if you take a magnet and put it next to another magnet? What will it do? It will either attract, or it will, and that's what a magnet does. And if you want to be a spiritual magnet for Jesus, understand this isn't like oh everybody's going to come because they love this teaching. No, some people are going to hate you just like they hated him. I want to hear this stuff. And what did they do with Jesus? They killed him. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for my name's sake. For the kingdom of heaven is yours. He understood that. If he's calling people to live like that, he knew what the end game was. So, I only have time to whet your appetite today. Lord willing, we're going to drink deeply from the teachings of Jesus in this passage of Scripture in the weeks and months to come. But for now, I must ask each of us, are you afraid of heights? You're afraid of heights? Will you climb with me? I want to climb with Jesus. I want to climb with him. He's looking for more climbing companions this morning, and God is calling us to take the higher road. Up there, there is rare air. The air up there is not like it is down here. But who will climb? Who will climb? That's the question that each of us must wrestle with. Who's going to climb? Deuteronomy 20, verse 8, records the officers talking to the nation of Israel before they were sent to war. They said this, is anyone terrified? If you are, go home before you frighten anyone else. So if you're scared to climb with Jesus, keep it to yourself, okay? 
Trust Him. Climb with Him. If we truly desire to climb with Jesus, we better best first count the cost. Because not many climbed. Not many. Not like Confederate General George Stedman. 1861, he dressed his troops for the first battle of Bull Run. Here's what General George said. Gentlemen, I want you to fight vigorously and then run away. As I'm a bit lame, I'm going to begin running now. <laughs> Love that confidence, don't you? <laughs> I want a leader like that. Uh, I'm leaving now, boys, so uh, get a head start on you. And so they did, too. The Lord said to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you. Wherever you go, will you dare climb? Will you say yes to be his climbing companion? Count the cost. Count the cost. Then let's climb. Let's see where Jesus takes us. I'm excited about that. Yeah, let's pray. Father, thanks. Thank you for these wonderful people who have come. And I I know they have ears to hear because your spirit has prompted their hearts to be here even today. And I ask, Lord Jesus, that the truth of what you taught will not simply fill our head with information, but change our hearts to be more like you. And we say, your kingdom come, your will be done. Lord, have your way in us. And then send us to the nations, whatever that might look like in your plan. But there are some here I know that are afraid or discouraged this morning. They've been waiting on you a long time. Some are still waiting for a miracle. And yet, God, beyond these circumstances of this short life, give us the faith to look to you, to trust you, and to understand where we are, to understand what's happening is all has meaning and purpose in your economy. And all you're asking us to do is to climb with you. God, you are with us wherever we go. Take us to places we've never been as we surrender to you. So with anticipation, we say, come, Lord Jesus, have your way. And we'll thank you for what's going to happen over these next weeks and months as we look into your word together. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.